Section 20 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18. George the Second. The year when George the First died was made memorable forever by the death of a far greater man than any European king of that generation. When describing the events which led to the publication of the Draper's Letters, we mentioned the fact that Sir Isaac Newton had been consulted about the coinage of Wood's Haypence. That was the last time that Isaac Newton appeared as a living figure in public controversy of any kind. On March 20th, 1727 the great philosopher died after much suffering at his house in kensington the epitaph which pope intended for him sums up as well as a long discourse could his achievements in science nature and nature's laws lay hid in night god said let newton be and all was light no other discovery ever made in science approaches in importance to the discovery of the principle of universal gravitation the principle that every particle of matter is attracted by every other particle with a force proportioned inversely to the square of their distances vague ideas of some such principle had long been floating in the minds of some men had probably been thus floating since ever man began to think seriously over the phenomena of inanimate nature but the discovery of the principle was however as distinctly the achievement of newton as paradise lost is the work of milton we find it hard now to form to ourselves any clear idea of a world in which newton's principle was unknown it would be almost as easy to realize the idea of a world without light or atmosphere newton is called by sir david brewster the greatest philosopher of any age sir john herschel assigns to the name of newton a place in our veneration which belongs to no other in the annals of science in this book we have only to record the date at which the pure and simple life of this great man came to its end the important events of his career belong to an earlier period his teachings and his fame are for all time the humblest of historians as well as the greatest may ask himself what is the principle of history which bids us to assign so much more space to the wars of kings and the controversies of statesmen than to the life and the deeds of a man like newton in the whole history of the world during newton's lifetime the one most important fact the one fact of which the magnitude dwarfs all other facts is the discovery of the principle of gravitation yet its meaning may be explained in fewer words than would be needed to describe the nature of the antagonism between walpole and pulteney or the reason why queen anne was succeeded by king george we have however in these pages only to deal with history in its old and we suppose its everlasting fashion that of telling what happened in the way of actual fact telling the story of the time the english public took the death of george i with becoming composure the vast majority of the people never troubled their heads about it it gave a flutter of hope to spain it set the councils of the stuart party in eager commotion for a while but it made no change in england george i was always reckoned vile still viler george the second these are the lines in which walter savage landor sums up the characters of the first and second georges before passing on to picture in little 
the characters of the third and fourth of the name. Landor was not wrong when he described George II as, on the whole, rather worse than George I. George II was born at Hanover on August 30, 1683, and was therefore in his 44th year when he succeeded to the throne. He had still less natural capacity than his father. He was parsimonious, he was avaricious, he was easily put out of temper. His instincts, feelings, passions were all purely selfish. He had hot hatreds and but cool friendships. Personal courage was perhaps the only quality becoming a sovereign which George II possessed. He had served as a volunteer under Marlborough in 1708, and at the Battle of Oudenarde he had headed a charge of his Hanoverian dragoons with a bravery worthy of a prince. He is to serve later on at Dettingen, and to be in all probability the last English sovereign who commanded in person on the battlefield. His education was not even so good as that of his father, and he had an utter contempt for literature. He had little religious feeling, but is said to have had a firm belief in the existence of vampires. He was fond of business, devoted to the small ways of routine. He took a great interest in military matters and all that concerned the arrangements of affairs of an army. Like his father, he found abiding pleasure in the society of a little group of more or less attractive mistresses. George II had always detested his father, and during the greater part of their lives was equally detested by him. The reconciliation which had lately taken place between them was as formal and superficial as that of the two demons described in Lesage's story. They brought us together, says Osmodius, they reconciled us, we shook hands and became mortal enemies. When the reconciliation between George II and his father was brought about by the influence of Stanhope and of Walpole, the father and son shook hands and continued to be mortal enemies. If George I had his court at St. James's, George II had his court and coterie gathered around him at Leicester Fields and at Richmond. The two courts were, in fact, little better than hostile camps. Walpole had been for long years the confidential and favorite servant of George I. The natural expectation was that he would be instantly discredited and discarded when George II came to the throne. So indeed it seemed at first to happen. When Walpole received the news of George I's death, he hastened to Richmond Lodge, where George II then was, in order to give him the news and hail him as king. George was in bed and had to be roused from a thick sleep. He was angry at being disturbed, and not in a humor to admit that there was any excuse for disturbing him. When Walpole told him that his father was dead, the kingly answer of the sovereign was that the statesman's assertion was a big lie. George roared this at Walpole, and then was for turning round in his bed and settling down to sleep again. Walpole, however, persisted in disturbing the royal slumbers, and assured the drowsy grumbler that he really was George the Second, King of England. He produced, for George's further satisfaction, a letter from Lord Townsend describing the time, place, and circumstances of the late King's death. Walpole tendered the usual ceremonial expressions of loyalty, which George received coldly and even gruffly. Then the minister asked whom His Majesty wished to appoint to draw up the necessary declaration for the Privy Council. Walpole assumed as a matter of course, that the king would leave the task in his hands. 
George, however, disappointed him. Compton, said the king, and when he had spoken that word, he intimated to Walpole that the interview was over. Walpole left the royal abode, believing himself a fallen man. Compton, whom the king had thus curtly designated, was Sir Spencer Compton, who had been chosen Speaker of the House of Commons in 1715. He had been one of George II's favorites while George was still Prince of Wales. He was a man of respectable character, publicly and privately, but without remarkable capacity of any kind. He knew little or nothing of the business of a minister, and it is said that when Walpole came to him to tell him of the king's command, he frankly acknowledged that he did not know how to draw up the formal declaration. Walpole good-naturedly came to his assistance, took his pen, and did the work for him. If the king had persevered in his objection to Walpole, the story of the reign would have to be very differently told. Walpole was the one only man who could at the time have firmly stood between England and foreign intrigue, between England and financial blunder. Nor is it unlikely that the king would have persevered and refused to admit Walpole to office, but that he happened to be, without his own knowledge, under the influence of the one only woman who had any legitimate right to influence him, his wife Caroline. Caroline, daughter of a petty German prince, the Margrave of Brandenburg-Ansbach, was one of the most remarkable women of her time. Her faults, foibles, and weaknesses only served to make her more remarkable. She had beauty when she was young, and she still had an expressive face and a sweet smile. She was well-educated and always continued to educate herself. She was fond of letters, art, politics, and metaphysics. She delighted in theological controversy, and also delighted in contests of mere wit. But of all her valuable gifts, the most valuable for herself and for the country, was the capacity she had for governing her husband. She governed him through his very anxiety not to be governed by his wife. One of George's strongest and at the same time meanest desires was to let the world see that he was absolute master in his own house and could rule his wife with a rod of iron. Caroline, having long since discovered this weakness, played into the king's hands and always made outward show of the utmost deference for his authority and dread of his anger. She put herself metaphorically and indeed almost literally under his feet. She was pleased that all the court should see her thus groveling, George was in the habit of making jocular allusion, in his jovial, graceful way, to living and dead sovereigns who were governed by their wives, and he often invited his courtiers to notice the difference between them and him, and to admire the imperial supremacy which he exercised over the humble Caroline. By humoring him in this way, Caroline obtained, without any consciousness on his part, an almost absolute power over him. Another, and a worse failing of the king's, she humored as well. She had suffered much in the beginning of her married life because of his amours and his mistresses. Her true and faithful heart had been wrung by long jealousies, but happily for herself and for the country she was able at last to rise superior to this natural weakness of woman. Indeed, it has to be said with regret for her self-degradation that she not only tolerated the love-making of the king and his favorites, but even showed occasionally a politic interest in the promotion of the amours and the appointment of the ladies. 
she humoured her lord and master's avarice with as little scruple thus his principal defects his sordid love of money his ignoble passion for women and his ridiculous desire to seem the absolute master of his wife became in her skilful hands the leading strings by which she drew and guided him whither she would have him go through caroline's influence mainly walpole was retained in power she played on the king's avarice and poured into his greedy ear the assurance that walpole could raise money as no other living man could caroline acted in this chiefly from a sincere love of her husband and anxiety for his good but partly also it has to be acknowledged because it had been made known to her that walpole would provide her with a larger allowance than it was compton's intention to do the result was that walpole was retained in office or perhaps it should be said restored to office the crowds of courtiers who loved to worship the rising sun had hardly time to offer their adoration to compton when they found that the supposed rising sun was only a meteor which instantly vanished horace walpole the younger describes the event by a happy phrase as compton's evaporation compton himself had soon found that the responsibility would be too much for him he besought the king to relieve him of the burden to which he found himself unequal the king acceded to his wish walpole became once more first lord of the treasury and chancellor of the exchequer and townsend continued to be secretary of state the crisis was over parliament assembled on june fifteenth after the death of george i as the law then stood any parliament summoned by a sovereign was not to be dissolved by that sovereign's death but should continue to sit and act during a term of six months unless the same shall be sooner prorogued or dissolved by such person who shall be next heir to the crown of this realm in succession the meeting of june fifteenth was merely formal parliament was prorogued by a commission from george the second until the twenty seventh of the month both houses then met at westminster and the king came to the house of peers in his royal robes and ascended the throne with all the regular ceremonial sir charles dalton gentleman usher of the black rod was sent with a message from the king commanding the attendance of the commons when the commons had crowded into the space appointed for them in the peers chamber the king delivered from his own mouth the royal speech george the second had at all events one advantage over george the first as a king of england he understood the language of his subjects and could speak to them in their own tongue the royal speech began by expressing the king's persuasion that you all share with me in my grief and affliction for the death of my late royal father the king was well warranted in this persuasion nothing could be more correct than his assumption the lords and commons quite shared with him his grief and affliction for the death of his royal father they felt just as much distress at that event as he did the king then went on to declare his fixed resolution to merit by all possible means the love and affection of his people to preserve the constitution as it is now happily established in church and state and to secure to all his subjects the full enjoyment of their religious and civil rights he expressed his satisfaction at the manner in which tranquillity and the balance of power in europe had been maintained the strict union and harmony which had hitherto subsisted among the allies of the treaty of hanover and which had chiefly contributed to the near prospect of a general peace finally the king pointed out 
that the grant of the greatest part of his civil list revenues had now run out and that it would be necessary for the house of commons to make a new provision for the support of him and his family i am persuaded said the king that the experience of past times and a due regard to the honour and dignity of the crown will prevail upon you to give me this first proof of your zeal and affection in a manner answerable to the necessities of my government then the king withdrew and lord chesterfield moved for an address of condolence congratulation and thanks the condoling and congratulating address was unanimously voted was presented next day to his majesty and received his majesty's most gracious acknowledgment meanwhile the commons having returned to their house several new members took the oaths sir paul methuen treasurer of the household the author of the commercial treaty with portugal which still bears his name moved an address of condolence and congratulation to the king the motion was seconded by sir robert walpole and as the formal record puts it voted nemine contradicente a committee was appointed to draw up the address sir robert walpole of course being one of its members the chairman of the committee paid walpole the compliment of handing him the pen whereupon as a contemporary account reports it sir robert without hesitation and with a masterly hand drew up the said address walpole could be courtly enough when he thought fit he seems to have distinctly outdone the house of lords in the fervour of his grief for the late king and his devotion to the present the death of george i walpole pronounced to be a loss to this nation which your majesty alone could possibly repair having mentioned the fact that the death of george i had plunged all england into grief walpole changed as by the stroke of an enchanter's wand this winter of our discontent into glorious summer your immediate succession he assured the king banished all our grief on monday july third the commons met to consider the amount of supply to be granted to his majesty walpole as chancellor of the exchequer stated to the house that the annual sum of seven hundred thousand pounds granted to the late king for the support of his household and of the honour and dignity of the crown had fallen short every year and that ministers had been obliged to make it up in other ways the present sovereign's necessary expenses were likely to increase the chancellor of the exchequer explained by reason of the largeness of his family and the necessity of settling a household for his royal consort the chancellor of the exchequer therefore moved that the entire revenues of the civil list which produced about one hundred and thirty thousand pounds a year above the yearly sum of seven hundred thousand pounds already mentioned should be settled on his majesty during life the motion was supported by several members but mr shippen the earnest and able though somewhat eccentric jacobite and tory had the spirit and courage to oppose it shippen's speech was expressed in a spirit of loyalty but was direct and incisive in its criticism of the government proposal shippen pointed out that the yearly sum of seven hundred thousand pounds now thought too little was not obtained by the late sovereign without a long and solemn debate and was described by every one who contended for it as an ample revenue for a king he reminded the house that queen anne used to pay about nineteen thousand pounds a year out of her own pocket for the augmentation of the salaries of poor clergymen allowed five thousand pounds a year out of the post-office revenue 
to the Duke of Marlborough, gave several hundred thousand pounds for the building of the castle of Blenheim, and by this means came under the necessity of asking Parliament for five hundred thousand pounds, which she determined never to do again, and had therefore prepared a scheme for the reduction of her expenses, which was to bring her full yearly outlay down to four hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Shippen then severely criticized the foreign policy of the late king's reign, and with justice condemned the extravagance which required to be met by repeated grants from the nation. I confess, he said, that if the same management was to be continued, and if the same ministers were to be again employed, a million a year would not be sufficient to carry on the exorbitant expenses so often and so justly complained of in this house. He deplored the vast sum, sunk in the bottomless gulf of secret service. I heartily wish, he exclaimed, that time, the great discoverer of hidden truths and concealed iniquities, may produce a list of all such, if any such there were, who have been perverted from their public duty by private pensions, who have been the hired slaves and the corrupt instruments of a profuse and vainglorious administration. Shippen concluded by moving as an amendment that the amount granted to His Majesty be the clear yearly sum of £700,000. It is worth noticing that when Shippen had occasion once to refer to some of Walpole's arguments, he spoke of him as my honourable friend, and then suddenly corrected himself and said, I ask pardon, I should have said the honourable person, for there is no friendship betwixt us. Shippen's speech hit hard, and must have been felt by the ministry. The one charge against Walpole's government, which he could not refute, was the charge of extravagance and corruption. The ministers, however, affected to treat the speech with contempt, and were justified in doing so by the manner in which the House of Commons dealt with it. No answer was given to Shippen's statements, because Shippen's motion was not seconded and fell to the ground. The resolutions proposed by the Chancellor of the Exchequer were carried without a division, and a bill was ordered to be brought in to give effect to them. A provision of £100,000 a year was voted for the Queen, in case she should survive the king. The vote was agreed to without division or debate. Parliament was dissolved by proclamation on August 7th. The new Parliament met on January 23rd, 1728. It was found that the ministerial majority was even greater than it had been before. The king opened Parliament in person and directed the commons who had been summoned to the House of Peers to return to their own house and choose their speaker, the Commons unanimously chose Arthur Onslow to this high office. Compton, the former speaker, had been soothed with a peerage after his evaporation. Arthur Onslow was born in 1691 and had been in Parliament from 1719. In July of 1728, he was made Privy Councillor. We may anticipate events a little for the purpose of mentioning the fact that all the writers of his time united in ascribing to Speaker Onslow, as he has always since been called, a combination of the best attributes which fit a man to preside over the House of Commons. It is said that his election to the Speaker's chair was brought about mainly by Sir Robert Walpole, and that Walpole expected Onslow to use his great abilities and authority to suit the policy and serve the wishes of the administration. 
if this was walpole's idea he must soon have found himself as much mistaken as the conclave of cardinals about whom so much is said in history romance and drama who elected one of their order as pope because they believed him to be too feeble and nerveless to have any will of his own and were much amazed to find that the moment the new pope had been elected he suddenly became strong and energetic the master and not the servant onslow's whole conduct in the chair of the house of commons during the many years which he occupied it displayed an absolute and fearless impartiality the chair has never been better filled in english history the very title of speaker onslow ever afterwards given to him is of itself a tribute to his impartiality and his services onslow was a man who loved letters and art and also it is said loved studying all varieties of life it is reported of him that he used to go about disguised like a sort of eighteenth-century harun al-rashid among the lowest classes of men in out-of-the-way parts of the capital for the purpose of studying the forms and manners of human life legend has preserved the memory of a certain public-house called the jew's harp where onslow was said to have amused himself many an evening sitting in the chimney-corner and exchanging talk and jests with the company who frequented the place it is pleasant to be able to believe these stories of speaker onslow in that highly artificial and formal age that age of periwigs and paint and shallow formulas it is somewhat refreshing to meet with this clever man of eccentric ways the great speaker who could wear his official robes with so much true dignity and then when he had laid them aside could amuse himself after his own fashion and study life in some of its queerest corners with the freshness of a schoolboy and the eye of an artist End of chapter eighteen